Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Friday, January 11th, and we're talking about stocks for 2019. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Brian Faroldi on Skype. Brian, what's going on? Hey, Dylan, happy Friday to you. Happy Friday. Are you guys supposed to be getting snow this weekend? Uh, I have no idea, but my weekend is going to be filled with football. My, my New England Patriots have a playoff game, and more importantly, my son's indoor flag football team has a tournament going on. So that's what, if it snows or not, I don't care. How about you? Uh, you just had to twist the knife there, Brian. You know that I'm from New Jersey. You know that I'm a Jets fan. I don't need to be hearing about the Patriots right now, all right? I, I get it. I'll make sure you know exactly what's going on with the Patriots, Dylan. <laughs> it's bad enough with Chris Hill and Matt Argersinger. I don't need to be hearing it from uh, from you too, Brian. Uh, yeah, it's a rough time of the year to be a Jets fan. It's also a rough time of the year uh, for the stock market. I mean, we've been, we've been looking at uh, some pretty strong returns for the S and P 500 over the last couple of years. 2018 was the first year since the Great Recession that the S and P 500 logged a down year, uh, and that final result was down 4.38 percent. Brian, I feel like heading into 2019, there are probably a lot of investors trying to forecast whether the bull market we've come to know is going to keep going. Or if maybe this is the time to think about what they own uh, and and what's available for them, you know, maybe a little bit shorter term than they normally would. Yeah, this is uh, given the recent volatility. Uh, it can be a good time to for investors to look at their portfolio and re- reassess their exposure. Uh, in some cases, if if the recent downturn caused people a lot of anxiety or they were up, they lost sleep over it. It can be uh, useful to go through and uh, de-risk your portfolio by by moving into some securities and out of others. Yeah, and we're going to talk today about some stocks that, you know. Provide a decent amount of downside protection, um, and we're going to kind of cover a spectrum from slightly less risky to a little bit more risky. But we're doing it with the understanding that there are some people that maybe can't stomach a 30 or 40 percent sell-off, which is something that might happen with a lot of the growth stocks that we typically cover, especially some of these relatively young companies that aren't quite profitable yet. So today, our our view is going to be a little bit different uh, than maybe we normally would be, and we're going to do that. We need to give the normal caveats here that this is not personalized financial advice, uh, but I think we need to recognize that people will look at dips very differently depending on what their financial situation is. You know, if you're a long ways from retirement, Brian, it it's a bummer to have your portfolio dip, but you know that if you're looking five, ten, maybe even twenty, thirty years out, it doesn't make much of a difference to you. Not at all, and that's why we at The Fool are always talking about the long-term, thinking like business owners. Uh, the stock market can you know, really test your nerves over a quarter, or even a year, or even multiple years. So, that's why we expound staying focused on the fundamentals of the business, thinking and acting with the long-term in mind. And when times like this comes up, when you just see your portfolio get mashed, you need to be thinking, it's time to get aggressive, it's time for me to be a net buyer, not to be a seller. On the flip side, you know there are folks that are either nearing or are in retirement, and I think when they see their portfolio sell off twenty or thirty percent, it's a lot harder for them to look at that opportunistically. You know, they know that they either are already taking distributions or will need to soon take distributions from those funds. And when you're in that position, you want your money to keep growing, but you're a lot more sensitive to losing money. And so today we're going to focus a little bit more on that other half because I think there are times where in our growth focused mindset, Brian, we can get a little a little carried away and maybe spend a little bit too much time looking at the big growth opportunities that are out there that are also a little bit riskier. 
Yeah, uh, uh, gro growth stocks and consumer-facing stocks are obviously a lot more fun to talk about, but there's certainly a uh, spot in uh, anyone's portfolio for safer companies that have lower risk profile. All right, before we get into the companies that we're going to discuss, why don't we break down exactly what investors should be looking for? True to form, in doing a show with you, Brian, we have a checklist, we have a guideline that we are going to be basing a lot of our analysis off of. I think one of the big things when I'm considering things that can weather a recession or a prolonged downturn is how does what the company offers fit into what consumers are doing with their buying decisions? Yeah, when, when, when a downturn comes, you really need to think through the business model of the company. And, uh, and companies that have very products that are in demand no matter what's going on, that can depend on their revenue and net income staying stable even during downturns, are obviously going to fare much better during a recession than companies that are much more cyclical. Um, so, when you're thinking through uh, the stocks that you own, uh, it, it can be a good practice just to think about what would happen to their revenue and profits if the economy was to slow down. And I think one of the clearest examples for something like this is you look over in the retail space, a company like Tiffany & Co. Um, they are probably going to struggle a little bit more during an extended period of economic hardship because people just aren't buying luxury goods the same way they would if they have more disposable income and times are particularly good. You know, on the flip side, the bargain companies, uh, the TJ Maxx's of the world, those types of businesses might do a little bit better because they're offering discounts to the people that are coming into the store. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I mean, even in the tech space, some companies rely on a strong economy to grow, whereas other companies do not. Their products will be in demand no matter what's going on. So, even within the tech sector, you can find companies that are far more resi resistant to downturns than others. All right, we also want to look a little bit at the books here, and we're going to call this one financial security. Um, and really, this comes down to having a relatively low debt load and having some cash on hand to pay bills. This is something we've talked about the importance of quite a bit with you on the show in the past, Brian. Yeah, definitely, debt can be a killer when 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 your business is heading south. Uh, and another factor I'd throw in there is just make sure that the company is consistently profitable and is pumping out cash flow. Because some of the companies we're going to talk about do have a substantial amount of debt, but as long as their business is highly resilient, you you can feel good that they can be able to uh, fund their needs throughout any downturn. And and something else that we'll want to see with these businesses is something that leads to growth. It's a clear, sustainable competitive advantage in a market that is growing. So, you'll hear very often that people should be looking at some consumer staples in this type of market. You know, a lot of people will throw out the Procter's and Gamble's, the Clorox's, uh, maybe even some of the tobacco companies of the world. Uh, I think the thing that you have to keep in mind there is, you know, are the markets that those companies are serving Growing, uh, sometimes the answer is no, and you're paying for security that uh, I mean, I guess there's a higher floor, but there isn't really much of a ceiling in terms of you know where those companies could go. Yeah, uh, companies that are selling into a market that is naturally growing even during a downturn are obviously going to have a much better chance at maintaining or even growing their revenue and profits than one that is in a declining market. Uh, another big thing for us is looking at how these companies have endured. Past downturns, uh, and I think this is particularly important for companies that have dividend programs in place. But you go back to the financial collapse of 2007, 2008. How did this company do? If the management is still in place there, you know, how did they make decisions, uh, and and how did the company weather, you know, that period? 
Yeah, the, the Great Recession was obviously extremely painful, but one of the great things for investors is that you can go back and look at how your companies uh, performed during that period. I mean, if your company's revenue and profits were pretty steady, you, you can be, feel good that you have a good company. If, on the other hand, their revenue and profits dove, or just declined significantly, you know, that, that, that can give you a sense of the company's risk profile. It's something that I think we need to recondition ourselves for with this show is, you know, we'll very often look at a company's valuation and and care about it, but also see that a high valuation is indicative of a potentially large total addressable market, and the fact that you know there is a lot of demand for this company to meet with the products they're going to be rolling out there. Um, of course, in a downturn, people are going to be more sensitive to the valuation multiples. That company's sport, and if you're looking at those nosebleed valuations, those are the companies that are going to be really hit by any major sell-offs in the market. Yeah, the growth companies that we like to talk about often sport very high valuation multiples, and those are the, some of the first so, uh, stocks that get hit the hardest uh, when investors flee for safety. So, yeah, we don't typically talk about valuation. We're talking about high-growth SaaS stocks, for example. But in in the case where you're thinking defense first, valuation is much more important. Yeah, and and the simple reason there is, I mean, the downside is is pretty much baked in, you know, to a certain extent. You know, for for a company like Apple, you know, that trades at, uh, you know, maybe the low teens in terms of earnings, uh, maybe even lower given some of the recent sell-off, they can only go so much lower because so little is currently priced into the stock. Totally different story for a company that is not yet profitable and has 30-50% sales growth currently baked into the valuation. I think that's 100% true. Companies like <laughs> Apple, which are big and stable, will just naturally be a little bit safer for investors. And I guess, speaking of Apple, it's kind of a good cue up for our last one, and that's limited exposure to struggling markets. You know, I think China is maybe one of the big ones to focus on here, but looking back at that show that Evan and I did on Apple uh, last week, talking about Tim Cook's letter, you know, that was one of the really big first signals that the economic deceleration in China was being felt by U.S. companies in a major way. Um, I think that you want to be sensitive to the markets that companies are serving and how those markets are doing. That's going to have an outsized effect on what goes on with the stock. I think that's 100% correct. All right. With that out of the way, I mean, that's a lot of a lot of boxes for a business to check. It's going to be hard for them to do it, uh, but I think it's kind of a guide to uh, look at businesses, and, and that's kind of how we're going to be looking at things uh, on this show today. We're going to go through three different companies, Brian. We have, I would say, a reasonably safe pick, a company that offers solid growth uh, with a decent amount of safety, and then a business that is relatively stable, more growth-oriented, but certainly a little bit riskier. Uh, we're going to tackle that in ascending risk so why don't we start out with our safest one, and that is Verizon Communications. Yeah, I'm sure this is a company that almost everybody listening is familiar with. They are the number one wireless provider in the U.S., um, and they also provide a wireline uh, to lots of customers. Um, I'm sure lots of people have heard of their uh, internet offering, which is called FiOS, which provides video and internet. Uh, this is a company with 117 million wireless customers, and you know, a, the cell phone has basically become a utility for for consumers today. They they pay it the same way they pay their electric bill or their their water bill. So, even during a downturn, you can feel really good that Verizon's uh, core uh, wireless business is just going to be it's just going to hold up extremely well because consumers are so willing to to pay for their cell phone. 
Yeah, and this is the company that boasts the best wireless network nationwide, if you look at most industry data. And I think that that's particularly big for Verizon, because the wireless industry is incredibly cutthroat, it's brutally competitive, but they are able to charge more than a lot of their peers, because they offer the best service, because they have the most consistent coverage across the country. Uh, And that gives them that premium pricing, and I think it gives them a little bit more stability. It insulates them from a lot of the competitive pricing that we see from the Sprints and the T-Mobiles of the world. Yeah, Verizon is seen as kind of like the gold standard network. They've done a great job with their marketing to just convince people that their network is number one, and you should stick with them if you want the best service, no matter where you are. And to your point about the role that phones play in people's lives, um, this is something that a lot of people just need to have. And depending on where you are in the country, uh, the coverage is super important, especially in some of the more remote areas where you can't bank on being near a major metro area and all of the network benefits that come with that. Um, I think one of the strongest signals to me that the business is doing well is the fact that their postpaid churn is about 0.8%. You compare that to some of the companies that have really steadily discounted to try to acquire customers. Uh, that's about half what their churn is. So you know, it's clear that the premium pricing, better coverage model seems to work, and they hold on to customers rather than having to spend a ton of money to acquire them, only to lose them down the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that postpaid churn rate is going to surprise some listeners, but I don't know about you. I tried to actually change my cell phone provider a couple of years ago to one of the discounted offerings, and uh, my wife basically said no. Uh, I, I went with it, and she convinced me to come back because she was just uh, not willing to give up her Verizon, uh, to give up using Verizon. So the customer uh, Verizon's competitive position is is very strong. Looking back at 2007 and 2008, the stock did decline, um, as did the market, but their decline was lower than the broader sell-off we saw in the market. So that's just a signal of, okay, this is a company that tends to weather these downturns a little bit better uh, than a lot of high-price growth stocks. Um, and for them, kind of curiously, sales actually increased throughout the recession, which you don't see very often. Right. Back in uh, when the recession was just picking up, it was like 2008, and that's when the smartphone boom was just really starting to take off, and Verizon definitely benefited from that. So, their revenue actually grew uh, through 2008 to 2009 to 2010. Uh, as you mentioned, its stock got walloped, but that was the Great Recession, and there was very few places that you could hide in the stock market. So, the stock did decline, but it was actually a lower uh, peak to peak to trough drop than than the market in general. So Verizon is is considered to be a low beta stock, which means that its stock price doesn't move up or down very much when compared to the market in general. Another encouraging sign here, um, they are one of the companies that continued to hike their dividend during the financial crisis. And the dividend is what attracts a lot of people to Verizon. Uh, they're a steady payer. They've grown their payment over uh, the last couple of years and consistently doing it. Um, and granted, they enjoyed the smartphone boom and maybe had a little bit more in the coffers than they would have absent that trend. But that's a sign you want to see, particularly from a dividend payer, uh, when you're looking back at how they performed over downturn periods. Um, another sign of you know them being a solid stock to own, if you're worried about uh, a lot of volatility, uh, a lot of risk in the market, is they trade at a low valuation. Uh, 12 times trailing earnings, 12 times forward earnings. That pretty much says it all about the growth outlook for this business. 
Yeah, the, this company is, is growing its earnings at a you know, mid-single-digit rate. It's about 6% over the last five years. That's about what investors expect moving forward. But the, the type of investor that's attracted to Verizon is an income investor. They, they are holding the stock because they want to get their hands on the company's dividend yield. The dividend yield is currently 4.4%. And like you said, it's been paid for literally more than 30 years. So the, people, the type of person that owns Verizon stock is attracted to it is really there for the dividend. So those type of investors are less likely to to sell uh, when the market goes down because they're not in the stock for capital appreciation, they're in it for the dividend. So as long as the dividend remains solid, uh, I think that the stock will hold up very well in, in any sort of bear market. For all the strength that we've outlined with Verizon, there is one thing that they don't quite check in terms of uh, being riskless, uh, and that's the fact that they carry a lot of debt relative to the amount of cash that they have on hand, Brian. Uh, $114 billion in debt, which they are trying to pay down. Uh, against 2.5 billion in cash, not exactly what you'd love to see. Yeah, they, their their balance sheet is debt heavy, but that's just the nature of the industry that they're in. They're building cell towers. They're investing hugely in their equipment. It's very expensive to maintain a network and constantly upgrade it. So. Th- you can't. You, Verizon is just a company that you would expect to carry a, a huge amount of debt. Uh, so that doesn't concern me because the business is so stable, it is so dependable that you know people are going to pay their cell phone bill every month, no matter basically no matter what. So the debt is something for investors to think about, but I'm not very concerned about it. Yeah, I think if they were dealing with really crazy customer churn um, or running into issues where their network wasn't performing as strongly against peers, I would be a little bit more worried about the debt load. Uh, They continue to use debt to build out their network, uh, invest in 5G, you know, which is kind of where the industry is going, uh, and all these initiatives that should bode well for the business long term. Uh, Of course, that means that they're going to be carrying quite a bit of debt on the balance sheet in the meantime. Yeah, correct. But uh, the long-term bull case for owning a stock is you have the Internet of Things coming up, which is you know saying that billions of devices are going to come online and be connected to the network. Uh, there's the upcoming roll uh, rollout of the fi- of 5G, and then there's just the, the the business itself is so sticky that customers are so loyal that you have that dependable base. And then if you layer in Internet of Things and 5G on top of that, I think it's reasonable to expect that their that their estimated growth rate of about five or six percent of earnings is is achievable. All right. So for folks looking for steady dividend payments, solid yield, uh, likelihood that they won't be losing a ton in terms of actual share price depreciation during a really rough period of the market, Verizon's a good company to look at. For people that are willing to handle a little bit more volatility, we have a mid-range company, and this is a name that we have talked about fairly recently on the show. Uh, it's a stock that offers, in my opinion, really solid growth, uh, but is so strong in what they do, so well built out that they won't get crushed by anything for an extended period of time, and that is Microsoft. Yeah, uh, who would have thought that Microsoft? It's a, it's a just enormous business. It's one of the biggest businesses on earth, but it it is actually a a, a growth company. I mean, this business is so big, is so dominant, and has so many products. And over the last couple of years, they've made a big switch in their business model, where they went from selling licensed software to moving basically as much as they could into the cloud. And that move is just a gift that keeps on giving. This is a company that's posting a double double digit uh, earnings growth uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah, and they have this 
really wonderful and <laughs> well-established portfolio of products, and they're investing in a lot of long-term growth verticals as well. So, you know, software is what they are known for. But you look at over at what they're doing on the cloud side in terms of infrastructure with Azure. That is a huge growth opportunity for them, and they're one of the big players there. They're making up a lot of ground on the leaders in that space. Yeah, they, 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 their Azure product is just growing like a gangbusters, and it's out there competing with you know, the likes of Amazon and Google. So it's it's good to see that they're they're growing alongside with uh, the the industry in general. And then there's just their products like Office 365, which have Excel and Word and PowerPoint. Um, and then there's Windows that are just like dependable cash cows for this business. But they do have a couple of growth avenues uh, outside of just the cloud too. Um, they also own Xbox. Their their Microsoft Surface platform uh, Surface platform. Uh, is, is is gaining in popularity, and Microsoft's been you know acquisition heavy over the last couple of years. They bought uh, LinkedIn, the the you know the professional social network, and they just bought a company called GitHub, which is a code sharing and collaboration platform. So when you combine their steady, steady eddy, dependable business with their growth, this is a company that that's growing nicely. Yeah, and I mentioned before that they are somewhat insulated from major downturns. They did sell off fifty percent. Uh, you go back to the the financial collapse, so it's possible that they. Will Will be you know eating some losses uh, if the market were to turn down, but I think the strength of what they offer is just there and and is so resilient that people should be reasonably comfortable knowing that this is a company that will rebound pretty quickly. Um, going over to valuation, they're growing and the valuation reflects that. You look back at trailing earnings; they're looking at 42 times trailing earnings. It gets a lot more palatable though when you look on a forward basis. Yeah, they're trading at about 20 times uh, next year's earnings estimate, and their estimated growth rate over the next five years in earnings is about 12%. Those are those are reasonable numbers, uh, especially for a dominant company like Microsoft. But Microsoft's strength is really its balance sheet. I mean, this is a company with 135 billion dollars in cash. It does have 87 billion dollars in debt, but that's a net cash position of almost you know 40 billion dollars. So they have plenty of capital to invest to buy other businesses. Businesses, to buy back stock, to continue paying their uh, their dividend and grow it, and Microsoft is actually a pretty decent dividend payer. Its its yield is about 1.8 percent right now, which is pretty similar to the S&P 500. But their dividend has just grown consistently since they ever started paying it in uh, in 2003. And I think one of the things that we didn't talk about in our criteria earlier, but maybe is worth mentioning when we look at the uh, the cash and debt, is having cash on hand uh, during a downturn puts you in a position to be pretty opportunistic as well. You know. So, if there are companies out there that fit well into what you're trying to do, it puts you in a position to acquire. It also puts you in a position to buy back some of your own stock. And so, in their in their position, you know, they have what 60, 70 billion in net uh, cash. That that's a nice thing to have uh, if the market turns south. Especially since the rest of their business is so dependable. I mean, this company could absolutely get as aggressive as it wanted to uh, if a downturn were to come and take advantage of a weak stock price. And it just has, it'll still be adding, you know, billions in profit every year. So it, it, it has plenty of financial resources to do basically whatever it wants. All right, Brian, climbing up the risk ladder, we've got our last stock. And I think this is probably for folks that have a little bit of a longer time horizon. Uh, it's a steady business, but there's a lot of growth priced into it. Uh, and that is Adobe Systems. Maybe a name that a lot of people interact with, um, but haven't quite thought about investing in. Yeah, Adobe is kind of like this this company that uh, I've known about for years, and I, I never really dug into it. But once I started to really understand this business, I mean, this is a $110 billion company, so it is huge, but it is a 
it is a top tier uh, software company, and it's, a, it's actually one of my, my favorite stocks in the entire market right now. So most people are familiar with Adobe's, uh, what's called its Creative Cloud SaaS offering. So that's where it has products like uh, Photoshop, uh, Illustrator, Premiere Pro, Acrobat, and a lot of those products are basically the gold standard in the creative community. So like millions of designers and videographers and animators uh, are trained and use those products and they, you, they can't do their job without them. So it's just a extremely dependable business. Um, but beyond the creative cloud products, Adobe has actually been moving into what's called a digital experience unit, and that's where it provides cloud-based marketing and analytics tools to enterprise customers. So it can help with creating marketing campaigns, uh, an analyzing them, and uh, really increasing your presence in e uh, the e-commerce market. So they actually have a, a sizable business that serves uh, specifically business and enterprise customers. I think something that's fascinating with this stock in particular is, we go back and look at the history. Uh, the stock did not fare particularly well during the 2007-2008 uh, recession. Um, stock fell about 65% from its 2007 high. But you look at how the company performed this past year, when the S&P 500 sold off about 4%, they posted, what, 25-29% uh, uh, gains? Yeah, and, and the, the comparison between now and 2008 is not apples to apples because uh, a couple of years ago, Adobe switched its business model from doing a licensing model uh, to it forced all of its users to go to a software as a service model. So previously, during the last downturn, if a if a somebody wanted to delay upgrading to the latest Premiere or the latest Photoshop, uh, they could they could do so. Now uh, they're subscribing to Adobe services, so that's a recurring bill that they're paying every month, uh, regardless. So. I believe that if a downturn was to come, Adobe's, Adobe's uh, financial statements would actually hold up much better than they did during the last downturn. But even during the last downturn, uh, the numbers weren't horrible. I mean, their sales dropped 13%. I mean, that's not great, but considering the market environment they were in, that's not terrible I I either. Uh, they were still profitable, although their net, their net income did fall in half. But I believe that if, if a, a big recession was to uh, was on the horizon, that their business model now would allow them to hold up much better. And for all of us characterizing them as a high flying growth stock, I mean, their valuation doesn't look all that different than Microsoft's on a trailing basis. Uh, they're at about 45 times earnings on a forward basis, 25 times earnings. They aren't as built out and established, I think, as Microsoft is. But to your point earlier, I mean, they are the de facto software for all of these enterprise clients that are doing anything in the creative space. Yeah, and and a few years ago when they made that when they made the switch to a purely cloud based, uh, as we spoke about on our software as a service show, it did cost them revenue and profits in the near term. So their revenue and profits did hit uh, when they switched their business model. Uh, however, if you fast forward to today, their their revenue is growing at a twenty percent rate, and their earnings are growing even faster than that. I mean, over the last five years, this is a business that's put up earnings growth of forty eight percent annually. I mean, that's just huge, and and that rate is projected to, f to fall to 22% over the next five years. But if you compare that to their, their valuation of about 25 times next year's uh, earnings estimates, that's a very fast growth rate for uh, basically a slight premium to the market. So 
I think Adobe stock will probably hold up pretty well uh, because it's if, if it can deliver on its growth targets. You know, Brian, I didn't realize this as we were planning out the show, but now that we've talked about all three companies, I see another thing that was not included in our criteria, uh, and that is steady payments, routine purchases. Uh, you know. All of these businesses, whether it's Verizon with subscribers paying a monthly um, payment to them to use their network, uh, or Microsoft with its software products, or Adobe with their software products, all of these have recurring revenue streams uh, in one way or another. They are not banking on one big product release to make numbers. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, when when you can recount on recur, recurring revenue versus a, a a one-time sale, I mean, it is just the gift that keeps on giving, right? Your, your financial statements become much more dependable, and and Wall Street generally rewards that with a a more stable stock price. And Brian, you did a write-up recently on Adobe, right? So if anyone wants that in written form rather than in audio, uh, that is available. Yes, absolutely. It's right on fool.com. All right, listeners, if you want that, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com and we'll make sure to send that your way. Brian, anything else before I let you go? Uh, I would just say to the listeners if a market downturn does come, do your best to stay calm and think bargain hunting as opposed to freaking out. I appreciate that. I also appreciate you not sneaking a Go Patriots plug in there at the end. I hope that. Go Patriots. <laughs> there it is. I hope that you enjoy your Saturday and Sunday. I hope that your son wins and your other team loses. There, uh, there, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for joining me, Brian. Hey, great to be here as always. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out and say hey, like I said, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or of course you can tweet us over at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or you can check out the videos from this podcast over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for his work behind the glass today. For Brian Feroldi, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. Fool on.